Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Motivational Intelligence Podcast, where we take an immersive dive into the minds of extraordinary people. And the guy we have on this podcast today is one of less than 500 people on the planet that has climbed the seven summits. The seven summits are the tallest mountains on all seven continents. So that includes Mount Everest, Kilimanjaro, Denali, Aconcagua, even Vincent in Antarctica, which I got to imagine was tough. So this is Kevin Flynn. Kevin is a partner at Martino Flynn LLC, a full-service advertising and public relations agency located in upstate New York. So in addition to being one of less than 500 people to accomplish the seven summits, Kevin is also an, an award-winning advertising executive and an instrument-certified pilot. So this is going to be a good episode for you. Uh, we're going to do something special for this episode. Kevin has a book called Mount Everest, Confessions of an Amateur Peak Bagger, which is a great read. And we're going to do a, a, sign, a giveaway of a signed copy of this book. Uh, Kevin's going to sign a copy. Uh, so the, the back of the book reads a, a true story, warts and all, of what really happened to ad exec and amateur climber Kevin Flynn during his days at the top of the world. In this riveting, entertaining adventure, Flynn takes the reader along for the ride through each stage of his expedition, step by precarious step, from base camp to summit and back again. In May 2004, Kevin Flynn reached the summit of Mount Everest, but not without tears, laughter, failures, near-death experiences, and great friendships. If you've ever wondered what it would be like for a mere mortal to attempt Mount Everest, this book is as close as it gets. So we're going to do a, give, a giveaway of a signed copy of of his book. So to enter, just go to twological.com slash giveaway, twological.com slash giveaway. Uh, all you got to do is drop your email in and you'll be entered to win. Uh, we'll be in touch with the winner in about a week or so. So until next time, uh, please enjoy this episode of the Motivational Intelligence Podcast. I really think you're going to like it. The Motivational Intelligence Podcast is produced by the team at Two Logical. Two Logical is an international corporate training firm and the world's leading expert in motivational intelligence, which is the ability to understand, manage, and change the motives people have. Two Logical offers over 30 different keynotes, workshops, and full training courses to small, medium, and large Fortune 500 companies in 53 countries, a lot of which you're probably familiar with. Advisor, Bank of America, GE, Constellation Brands, P&G, and more. All solutions are completely customized and the feedback from these sessions will blow your mind. If you have any training or speaking needs or just want to say hey, head over to twological.com. Well, hello everybody. We uh, have a have a fantastic uh, 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 individual with us today. Uh, uh, one of those people who you you really step back and and sort of humbles you in terms of you know what one can accomplish in the in, in the course of their lifetime. So, we've got a gentleman with us today. His name's Kevin Flynn. Kevin is. Uh, one of less than 500 people, uh, at least according to the research that I could find, who uh, actually has climbed all seven 
of the highest mountains uh, in the world. They're the, the highest mountains on the seven continents, um, including Denali in uh, Alaska. Uh, is it Akinaga, right? Aconcagua. Aconcagua. The, the hard that, one to pronounce. That, that one doesn't run off, roll off the tongue no, so easy. <laughs> um, in Argentina, uh, Vincent in Antarctica, uh, uh, Kilimanjaro in Africa, and of course, Mount Everest. Uh, uh, he's also climbed all 46 of the Adirondack Peaks. Um, has written a wonderful book, actually, if anybody's interested, um, yeah, that uh, you can pick up on Amazon uh, entitled Mount Everest, Confessions of an Amateur Peak Bagger. Uh, great title, and it, it, it tells a really a wonderful story of the adventures of climbing Mount Everest. Uh, so I definitely would uh, recommend the book. Uh, and uh, in addition to which, Kevin is a instrument-rated uh, private pilot and runs a highly successful and award-winning advertising agency. Um, so, uh, uh, pretty phenomenal resume there, Kevin. Uh, you know, duly impressed. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, uh, truth be told, most of my career and and my hobbies and ha have been kind of accidental. Yeah. So I got into the business uh, by accident uh -huh. I, after. Uh, uh, my undergraduate degree, I was studying to be environmental education, maybe a you know, park ranger because I always loved the outdoors, yeah. and uh, fell in love with a girl there, and she had gotten accepted to uh, vet school at Cornell. Okay. So I devised this plan. My father had started our agency in 1967. My sister was working with him, so it was just a little family uh, retail broadcast shop. And I thought, well, I wasn't ready to go to grad school so I could be with my girlfriend. Right. I would move back to Rochester Intern for a year, and of course they paid me 25 bucks a week, so I was waited tables yeah. at night <laughs> to, to get by, and then go back to uh, Cornell to grad school, and I would be with my girlfriend. Right. And that plan worked out absolutely spot on perfect, with the exception of she dumped me after about a month <laughs> into that plan. But I still went back to uh, Cornell and got a master's in communications, and then came back and uh, have been working in the, the business for actually my entire professional career. So, but really by accident. Yeah. So, wow. But it was a happy accident. Yeah, there you go. You know, that's oftentimes the best things happen that mm -hmm. way. So tell us the, you know, you, you said you were always into the, you know, the outdoors and those kinds of things. So were you, you know, kind of an adventurous kid? Uh, how did the mountain climbing come about? You know, as a kid, well, I'm the black sheep of the family. I have uh, two brothers and a sister, and uh, and my parents, their idea of roughing it was, you know, the Holiday Inn kind of deal. Right. And so they always thought I was a bit weird. But growing up, uh, we had a creek in our backyard, so it was fun to just go out exploring, and I liked yeah. that kind of stuff. But it wasn't until I was uh, graduated from high school, the summer of 75, uh, that I and a couple of other friends did a backpacking trip up into the high peaks of the Adirondacks. And okay. we really were pretty poorly prepared, but uh, we went after it anyways. We were out, I think, about six days or so okay. in the backcountry and uh, climbed three or four mountains. And my first peak was Mount Haystack. And it was the first time I got above Timberline. And I'm like, wow, you know, it's, it's kind of windy. It's rocky. Yeah. My hands were involved. It wasn't technical climbing. Right. But I'm like, wow, this is New York State. This is fantastic. And so I was hooked. At that point, I didn't know there was a 46er club. Right. It's the 46 major peaks in the Adirondacks. Yeah. But after a while, I decided that, hey, that'd be really fun to do. And I kept going back up there, oftentimes alone. And I would just backpack alone because of, I didn't have friends who were necessarily into it. Not right. always the case. Uh, but uh, 
after doing about 12 or 13 of them, I go, I think I want to do them. Okay. I want to do them all. So I did them, and I thought, wow, but big mountains, that's crazy. I yeah. would never, I heard someone died on Denali. Yeah. Oh, my God, to have ropes and hang from ropes, that's just stupid. But so kind of a happy accident. Once we uh, I finished the 46, I had some friends, and like, hey, well, you know the mountains. We want to go in the winter. And I'm like, oh, it's cold. Yeah. I don't really want to do that. But we went. It was pretty great. And that led to going to Mount Washington in New Hampshire, which it's a little over 6,000 feet. And it's probably the most dangerous and nastiest small mountain weather-wise. Okay. It's, it's impressive. The highest wind speed was recorded on there for a lot of years um, until recently, over 200 miles an hour. Wow. And in fact, one out of every three days in the winter is what they call a century day where the peak gust exceeds 100 miles an hour. So, of course, we thought this would be great. So it was the first time you need I, – I put on crampons and okay. an ice axe. And crampons are the, the things that grip into the snow, the spikes kind of stuff. Right. And I loved it. I felt like Spider-Man huh. uh, on, on higher angle type uh, terrain. I thought this was fantastic. We had a great summit day in the winter. I, it was pretty cold and yeah. windy, but not, not 100-mile-an-hour winds. But I think I've climbed it five times in the winter. Wow. But I was like, well, if I can do this – again, this is sort of my accidental – way of jumping into things, yeah. uh, I was like, well, maybe you could take another step and, and go to Denali in okay. Alaska. And I went in 1992, and that was my first big mountain. And I went with a guide service because I didn't know ropes and crevasse rescue and all right. those other kinds of necessary skills sure. that you need for mountaineering. And we had a great trip. We were on the mountain three and a half weeks, and we got to high camp at about 17,200 feet, Jeez. and the weather just stunk. And oh, sometimes... Wow. That's just the way it goes. Yeah. And we finally, we waited up there. We spent uh, seven days and six nights at that altitude, and it just didn't get better. Huh. And so we retreated, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I will never again be get this opportunity because at the time, business was small. We were really struggling. Right. Like many businesses go through some of that stuff. So we were, we were kind of you know, pretty poor, just yeah. making ends meet barely. Yeah. And so I go, I'll never have that opportunity again. And lo and behold... 11 months later, I'm back on the mountain with three friends, huh. and uh, we went on our own and, and, and did everything as far as all the food, the planning, the preparation. So being self-sufficient, I think that was really great. Yeah. And again, we get up to high camp, and, and Denali's just beautiful, by yeah. the way. The Alaska Range, if you can ever get there, I mean, it's stunning. I, it, I love the Adirondacks, and they're charming and yep. wonderful and awesome, but that's a whole other level. So we get to high camp. And it's kind of deja vu again because weather stinks. And I think it was, we were up there about five days. And finally, we got a break in the weather. Okay. Went for the summit. Everything's going great. There's uh, two rope teams of two each. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my buddies goes, man, he pulled the plug. He goes, I just can't, I can't go on. So I thought, oh. They're like, well, you should take him down, go back to high camp. Right. And I thought, oh, I'm going to lose my chance at the summit. So, yeah. But I did. He was a great really good guy. Sure. We went back to high camp and I thought, oh gosh. So I kind of trolled around. There were some other climbing groups up there and to see if maybe I could hook, uh, catch a little piece of rope and right. go up with someone else the next day. Yeah. And uh, lo and behold, the folks that I had been with the year before, the guiding group, okay. said, sure, we'd love to have you. Oh. And so the next uh, morning, early, early, went up and was able to, uh, to uh, get to the summit and it was just an exquisite bluebird day and wow. it was great and super happy and long day but great day and that kind of led to it's like wow i think every couple of years i'd like to do something really big in the mountains okay. of course 
Everest, I knew about it. You know, that would be really cool, but that's not for me. I'm right. a mere mortal. There's no way I could do something like that. But Aconcagua was seemed like a nice place to go to uh-huh. South America. So we went down there and uh, spent about two and a half weeks out in the mountain. Bad summit weather. Went home without getting to the top. Okay. So, uh, so but that, that's kind of a theme then. I mean, you 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 go through. All this tremendous effort to, you know, to go to these places and to, um, you know, start to scale up there. And you're, you're, you're up there, you're kind of crossing your fingers that, <clears throat> excuse me, that you're going to have good enough weather to actually be able to make the summit. Yeah, it's not always a slam dunk. Yeah. So, uh, and sometimes it's not just the weather, too. Sometimes you may not just feel up to it. Right. Uh, can run out of time at some point. I mean, we generally would try to have more than enough time to, to make up for bad weather and whatnot. But sometimes it just, the the body wasn't feeling uh, good enough. But that was not the case in Aconcagua. Right. Just the weather was not so great. Okay. But so, came back. Then went to uh, Kilimanjaro with my friend Gary Fallison, who is also co-author of the book, who, uh, if you like the book, yeah. he deserves a lot of the credit. Okay. He does, he's a great guy and a great writer. But he and I went up to Kilimanjaro, and we had a great, great experience. You know, it's... It, I've been to a lot of places, but you get to Alaska and you really appreciate uh, how much we have, how rich we right. are, and how different mm-hmm. uh, people live in other areas. So that's another thing about the mountains I really like is that you get to experience all these unique cultures besides the natural beauty. Sure. And meet a lot of different types of people. And there's a there's a certain, you know, camaraderie amongst yep. mountaineers. Yeah. Uh, but we had a great time in on, a, on uh, Kilimanjaro. And we had Gary actually arrange for it. You have to take a guide, even though it's not the hardest mountain to climb. Okay. I think it's 19,300 feet and change. But uh, it's a desperately poor country, Tanzania. Okay. So one of the ways they get some revenue is that they, the locals are, are, are guides and porters and a cook. So for just Gary and me, we okay. had a guide, an assistant guide, a cook, and three porters. Wow. And it All is right. ridiculous. We get to our first campsite. And they lay out a checkered cloth. We have popcorn. They've got tea. Wow. I'm like, uh, this is kind of sweet. You know, <laughs> yeah, I can really? get used to this gentlemanly climbing. <laughs> you know, whereas yeah. on Denali, we're carrying huge loads. And, right. You know, it's 15 below, and we're just we're cooking everything ourselves, yeah. making it all happen. But now we're red gentleman climbers. There you go. And so we had a great time there. And then I did go back to Aconcagua. Okay. Uh, I think 2001. And... Uh, I was able to make the summit. I went with one of my buddies. Okay. He turned around on summit day, but I, I did summit. Okay. And then when I got back to uh, our high camp, I had a little bit of a cough, mm-hmm. which is not highly unusual because the air is really thin and super dry. Okay. So, I mean, but I wasn't sick or, or it wasn't anything terrible, but I was like, oh, I'm through with big mountains. Yeah. This is over. You know, and then that cure never lasts long. You get back from a big mountain, you forget all the pain. Yeah. And what you went through, and it's a good thing, or you might never go right. back. And uh, then I said, well, if I could do that, maybe the seven summits thing could go. So it was really at that point you had made the decision that uh, this is something I want to go after. Yeah, and I made the decision before I told anyone. Okay. Because I kind of let it percolate and going, wow, can I really, do, am I worthy? You know, one of the things in my book, the kind of premise is it's not like I'm some big hotshot guide doing extraordinary things, that it's more from the basis of, you know, a fairly ordinary, regular guy who can do extraordinary things if you really put yourself to it and uh, you do the training and and mentally you get where you want to go. So I 
I was a little bit shy about telling anyone because yeah. once it's out there and you say something, it's sure, like, you're well, maybe I, you should follow through. Yeah. And of course, I had to uh, talk with my wife first. Yeah. I love that in the book, the FWA, full wife approval. You yeah. know, foi. Yeah. yeah. And uh, foi was a word I invented. I like to coin some words is that you can't go anywhere without full wife approval. Now, right. my wife's really supportive. And the cool thing is she and I met in 89 and were married in 90. I introduced her to the Adirondacks. Okay. And she became a 46er over the years. Yeah, in cool. 2003, she finished on Mount Haystack, or not a coincidence, but Where you that started. was the first yeah. mountain that I started on. So that was really cool. So I remember we were having a conversation on our back deck, and I'm like, um, honey, I, I kind of think I want to go and give Everest a shot. You know, she goes, yeah, I knew it was coming. Huh. She goes, okay, but there's certain conditions. You know, this is me getting foie. Right, right, right. Approval. <laughs> you have to tell me everything uh, that goes on. If it's going to be six weeks or 10 or 12 weeks, don't, you know, don't sugarcoat right. anything. Full disclosure. Full disclosure about everything. Get, I was already physically quite fit. But, yeah. But notch that up to another level. Sure. You know, make sure that you are you are totally dialed in as well as you can be physically. And I was always kind of the frugal mountaineer. So mm-hmm. make sure you get the best equipment right. that you can get, which makes sense. So I did all those things. And one of the, when I did sign on with uh, International Mountain Guides, they were the folks I went with in 2002 and then back in 04. Right. Uh, there's a form, many forms, but one of the forms that caught uh, my eye was called the body disposal election form, wow. which is, should you perish on the mountain? Right, which about you, 300 or so people have, yeah, so it's yeah, not, uh, you sure, know. Sure, it's yeah. not that uncommon, sadly. Yeah. But should you perish on the mountain, what do we do with your body? You know, wow. one is we can try and take the body down and repatriate it and bring it back to the U.S., could be highly dangerous, ridiculously expensive, not necessarily recommended. Two, we can have the the Sherpas try and bring you back down to maybe base camp and do a cremation ceremony. Or three, we can basically throw your body into a crevasse, commit it to the mountain, and be done with it and and less safe, which was the option I chose. So I had to share that with my wife, so that went over. Um, That becomes very real at that point, you know? Yep. Yeah. Stuff just got real. And... uh, so foie, there's another kind of funny thing with foie, is uh, I have this colleague I work with, and uh, he read the book, and he, we talked about it. He goes, yeah, we, we have a, a, a derivative of that called poie. I go, what's poie? Yeah. He goes, well, that's when you get wife approval, but they're not happy about it. It's pissed wife <laughs> approval. So, Grudgingly. So you're going to yeah. do it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, fine. Okay. Yeah. So, the eye roll. We, yeah. we, everybody can relate to that. Yeah. The epic eye roll. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was kind of funny. Oh, my goodness. So that the, the that first trip to to Everest, um, it, it, you know, it's, you're, it, it's a little over, what, 29,000 feet? Yep. yep. So... The, you know, physically, obviously, you're, you're in a situation, you, as you talked about earlier, you've got very low oxygen, so you have to have supplemental oxygen so that you're able to breathe. Talk to us a little bit about just the, the mental side of wrapping your head. I mean, just, you know, you think about even filling out that form and saying, hey, what do I want done with my body if I don't make it? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, how do you you know, how do you get mentally ready for that? Or kind of what was your your mental state as you were coming into that? Well, you know, that's a, a great point. And my mental state was 
really apprehensive sure. and, and filled with some angst and, and worry. I'm not, not crazy, yeah. but, but more than there should have been. And, and I learned a lot. For, it took me two tries to get up. So yeah. the, the second trip uh, in 2004 was ultimately able to ring the bell on the summit, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. But going in there, there was just a lot going on. So there's all this self-doubt. It's like, well, I'm going to Everest. I said it out loud. I'm really, I'm actually on the plane there, and I'm in Kathmandu, and we're flying into the the Lukla, which is where you begin your trekking yeah. journey, to base camp about 40 miles away. And you go, God, do I belong here? And at that same time, there was a Maoist uprising in, in Nepal. Okay. And, and it wasn't long after 9-11 as well. So the world was a a funky place. Uh, so I was worried about that. Is, is the Maoist uprising going to screw us up? Right. Am I going to not be good enough? And on the trek on day three or so, you round a corner out of uh, Namche <laughs> Bazaar in the, the Kumbu Valley and turn around the corner and there's Everest. And so, you know, it's still another 30 miles away, but it looks impossibly high. Yeah. And, and it's one of those, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? So there's concerns about that, and, and I was a little sick on the trek. Mm-hmm. You, you, it's, no one stays completely healthy. Yeah. Uh, I had uh, budgeted about 12 weeks for the okay. journey, and, wow. and okay. door-to-door on the first trip, it was 10 weeks. So it's a long time. But the idea of the worry and the concern, that first trip, I just, you know, I give advice to people yeah. sometimes, like a couple things. One is don't worry twice, you know, or the things that you worry about, and, and kind of consume your mind. Yeah. 90% of it, either it never happens right. anyways, or it's out of your control. So you spend all this needless energy worrying about stuff. And it's not, you, and mentally, you want to be really strong and in the game yeah. and, and be a real bulldog. So, what is don't worry twice? Uh, don't worry twice is if it, if it does happen. Uh huh. You know, it's going to happen. Okay. So why worry about it until it does actually okay. happen? All right. So, All right. That, that's like great that. advice yeah. you know, for in any aspect of life. You yeah. know? No, it really yeah. is. And I didn't make it up. Someone told me that. So yeah. I, I, I like that advice. But that really was, you know, mentally and physically, yes, it's hard to climb the mountain. Sure. There's just a lot to do. And because you're on it for a long period of time and acclimatization takes a long time because you're at higher altitudes. You started about 9,000 feet. We trekked in. It took us about 10 days to go 35, 40 miles, which you could go a lot faster, but getting to Everest Space Camp is about 17,500 feet. Okay. So which if in and of itself is really high. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty high. But if you go too quickly, you don't develop enough red blood cells, more red blood cells, so that you can properly acclimatize and deal with the uh, less you know oxygen mm-hmm. available to you. So you take your time up there. And uh, so I was sick for a few days on the trek, and I was wondering if I was even going to make it to base camp, wow. which was pretty sad. But and then we spent a lot of time on the mountain. I want to say about eight weeks. And one of the reasons it takes a long time to climb is that you climb it several times. Okay. So you'll go up uh, after resting at base camp. When you first get there, it's mm-hmm. hard to breathe, but you get used to it. And then you go up through the Kumbu Icefall, which is How the first barrier. How long does it barrier. take to just get so that you're, you can breathe relatively normally at, at base camp? Um, they say that if you, once you reach about 9,000 feet or so, if you average about 1,000 feet of elevation uh, gain per day, okay. you can do reasonably well with that. Okay. So we would get to, so after three or four days, 
uh, at base camp, and we practiced a little bit in the Kumbu Icefall, and that's the part uh, people really remember where they have some of those ladders over crevasses, and there's all these big it's, seracs. So where they lash the ladders together, yes. and you gotta, oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and you uh, walk over them. There, you know, there's uh, fixed lines around there, so okay. if you were to fall, it'd be pretty inelegant, and uh-huh. you shouldn't fall all the way down. <laughs> but it would not be nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so. Uh, fortunately, didn't fall. But the Kumbu Icefall is really interesting. An icefall really is like a frozen waterfall. It's part of the glacier. Okay. So it's moving, coming down. I think it moves like two or three feet a day on oh. average, which is crazy. Yeah. So it's these jumbled, huge blocks of ice that can be the size of train cars. Jeez. And there's some are hanging precariously, and a route is, is put through the icefall. So sometimes you can just be at the wrong place at the wrong time. You can be doing everything right. And if something falls on you, you know, yeah. the joke was you don't really need to wear a helmet because you're going to get <laughs> It's not going to do you any good, right? yeah. Uh-huh. So. Wow. So you, so you, you, you said you, you climbed the mountain several times. Mm-hmm. So you're – and so it's the acclimation. And, and I remember from the book there's – was is there four camps that uh, – Yeah, there are four okay. camps. So the first camp you get to is Camp 1, just under 20,000 feet. Okay. And spent a couple days there, then went up to Camp 2, which is about through the western Coombe, which is very, very pretty, mm-hmm. and you get a really good look at the Lotse face. You can only see the shoulder of Everest. You can't quite see the tippy top just yet. Okay. It's kind of hidden. Uh, and Camp 2 is about 21,300 feet, and it's sometimes called advanced base camp. So okay. there's a couple of Sherpas there who are cooking for you. At Camp 1, we cook for ourselves. Okay. And we were what were called non-guided clients. So we worked on our own, but we had tremendous logistical support. Okay. There was the the high, altitude, high altitude Sherpas were amazing and really great. So it sounds like, oh, geez, you're on your own. Yeah. It's not quite that. Okay. Um, but we were reasonably self-sufficient, but, the, but with lots of logistical support. Okay. So we spent a couple more nights up at Camp 2. And I had a bit of a pounding headache. Okay. I'm like, oh gosh, am I, you know, again, so the worry comes through. Yeah, physically, yeah. I'm like, well, maybe I'm just not meant for this altitude. Sure. Because it was the highest sleeping altitude I had ever been at before. Yeah. Previously, it was on Aconcagua at about 19.5. So we come back down to base camp. And when we first got to base camp, it's like, I can't breathe. When we get back down to base camp, it's like, woohoo, take care. <laughs> it's great. I'm running around. And so then you you rest and recover for another four or five days. You try to keep active. Okay. So we, I, uh, just would sometimes go into a little village called Gorak Shep just to get some exercise, you know, go down the downhill a little bit right. for, you know, maybe a five-hour round trip. If okay. that. So then we went back up. And so this was supposed to be the last acclimatization rotation okay. before we're going for the summit. Yeah. So we do well. We go up to Camp 1, spend a night, Camp 2, spend a couple nights. And that year, oh, my God, we had this amazing about a 30-hour windstorm that it just rocked. I wow. got some cool video of it. Yeah. We had to jump out of the tents, and, and because it's on a lateral moraine, there's some rocks around. Mm-hmm. So we helped to bolster our temp, tents with uh, extra rocks. And it was probably blowing 80 miles an hour, a little bit more. And it was about, I think, like I said, 30 hours or so. One of the cook tents got a little bit shredded. Okay. Uh, but I hung up and really didn't sleep very well. I hung up with my back against the tent poles wow. uh, into the wind uh-huh. as it just kind of raged. Uh, so we had to wait an extra day, and then we that subsided, and we went up to Camp 3, up the Lotse face. Mm-hmm. And the Lotse face is really steep and icy, and you don't want to fall there. It, there are fixed lines in there so that are anchored into the ice. Okay. And so you're, 
double clipped in, one with an ascender, which is a device that, mechanical device that you can slide up one way, okay. and then it grips coming back, okay? okay? Mm -hmm. And then also a safety carabiner that's uh, tied to your sit harness okay. that as you're passing um, ice, uh, uh, ice screws mm -hmm. and, and pickets and things like that, anchors, so that you would put your crampon above the point of protection okay. so that you're still roped in, right. then remove the ascender and go like that. Okay. So it's very important not to miss For, a clip. Sure. So that was a nasty, slow uh, go up to 24,000 feet, steep, just unrelenting. Okay. Um, and then we finally get to this little desperate camp three, which is 24,000 feet. And that's the kind of thing if you have to go gather snow uh, to melt for water and mm -hmm. cooking and whatnot or relieve yourself or whatever, you want to either be clipped in or just be really careful. People have gone out to relieve themselves. A, a person did, slipped, fell, gone. Wow. You know, and, and no one's ever survived a, a, a fall on the, uh, the Lotse face. Okay. So, you know, obviously be careful. It's a desperate little perch. Sure. So we spent a miserable night there uh, breathing without supplemental oxygen okay. to try and shock our, our systems into getting some more um, oxygen. The next morning we wake up and it's a, a bit of a storm. It's, it's snowing, it's blowing probably 35, 40 miles an hour, so not crazy. Really reduced visibility. I'm freaked out a little bit like, well, we should get out of here. I'm yeah. going to get, I don't want to get altitude sickness. Uh -huh. And we can follow the fixed lines down. And we were just one of two groups up there. There were the th there were three of us from the, from our group, uh -huh. and then two other guys, an Englishman and a guy from Czech Republic. They were like, "Okay, I got this idea. Let's let's head down." So we start to head down, mm -hmm. and, and we have walkie talkies. We're talking to base camp, so okay. we do have you know we're getting advice, and everyone's listening to us. Right. And gee, what are they going to do? And it's really nasty. So this guy, Ted Wheeler, and I take off. And Ted is actually, uh, coincidentally, the mayor of Portland, Oregon, uh -huh. and a really great guy. So he and I left the tent. And this is how weird it can be when it's, when it's loud and you're wearing all this clothes and stuff. And this other guy, Stuart Smith, he was going to leave the tent too. But we had started down, Ted and I, a little bit. Mm -hmm. And Stuart never really got out of the tent. He got out. He was putting his crampons on. His feet got really cold. He says, oh. Screw it, I'm staying. Okay. So we're getting advice. Ted, you and Kevin, you keep coming down, yeah. and, and uh, you stay there. And I mean, we could do whatever we want, but sure. we were getting good advice. So we're heading down. We go down about a thousand feet, and it's just blowing, and it's right in your face. Yeah. Even though we have goggles and all that other stuff on, it's just miserable. Mm -hmm. And the, the going is slow again because you can't miss a clip, and going down is is oftentimes more dangerous than going up. So we get to a point where I think that. Somehow the fixed lines had avalanched over. Okay. We couldn't find the next, if you want to think of it as breadcrumbs right. on the way back down right. to camp two, or, and more importantly, your safety line. Yeah. I mean, literally your lifeline in right. that sense. Yeah. So we're like, uh-oh. And we knew pretty quickly that we weren't going to unrope and go down because one slip right. is death. So we go, oh, we have to reascend. So everyone's listening to this story right. of us going back up. And we got back there just, just about as it was getting dark, not quite. And there was some oxygen up there, so okay. we breathed some O's, and we spent the night there. Uh, much better with, with oxygen. Yeah. It's like night and day. And uh, it still was windy. And the next morning, it was windy, but it was clear. Okay. So the two guys who were there before us said, hey, Americans, we are heading down. Okay, we'll see you there. And we left about 10 or 15 minutes later. And right as we got out of the tent, the walkie-talkie kind of comes alive and said, there's been a fall on the Lotse face, oh. no reason to believe it's survivable. Oh. 
And then it's like, you know, so what happened? And so we're talking to Eric Simonson, who yeah. uh, was managing uh, the expedition leader. Mm-hmm. And he goes, yeah, you better gird yourself because you're going to see evidence uh, that's going to probably be pretty gruesome. And wow. so this one fellow, an Englishman, he apparently missed a clip. No one knows you know, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And you could tell where he kind of bounced on the oh, way down and geez. ended up in a Bergschrund, which is a big, giant crevasse at the at the bottom of the, the of that Lotse face. So that was really unnerving yeah. coming down, and, and that makes you question yourself. So, again, trying to keep your mind right and yeah. not worry too much yeah. and go, oh, yeah, well, it could never happen to me. Yeah. But it, it, it certainly could. Yeah, so. it's right there. So, yeah. so, so you're going through the process. The... Um, you've, you know, you've kind of got the, um, uh, you know, questioning, you're, you're watching what's going on. And, you know, so at that point, were you, you know, mentally still in a place where you're going, okay, I can do this? Or was it kind of second guessing a little bit the decision making at that point? Uh, second guessing a little bit, but we yeah. have short memories. And, yeah. and there's a little bit of that, you know, one of my chapters in the book is our, our death on Everest, our dirty little secret. Uh, it's kind of like no one would go to see the low wire act, you know, the high wire right, act when right. you're up there a yeah. couple hundred the feet. Perception it's, of danger makes it, yeah. It, in a strange, twisted way, makes it a little bit more appealing. So I just resolved just be extra careful. Okay. Make sure this doesn't happen to you. And yeah, we're going for it. Okay. Uh, so we spent another night or two at Camp 2, went back down to uh, base camp rested for now our summit run and you got to try and time the weather the thing the reason that there's such a a small weather window is that most people climb everest in the spring Mm -hmm. um pre-monsoon so what happens is for most of the time and typically we got there early april Mm -hmm. and then a, a time for a good summit run is Anywhere from around May 10th to June 1st. Okay. I mean, it can vary. And the reason for that is that typically earlier, the jet stream is right over the summit. So okay. it's just too nasty, too windy. Uh, but what happens is as the monsoon comes up the Indian subcontinent, it somehow pushes the jet stream away. Okay. So you get this window before the monsoon actually comes. Right. Uh, and the jet stream is pushed away that you get some good weather days. Okay. So that's what we were waiting for. And we went up as a group, um, I guess there were five of us, uh, of Western climbers, Mm -hmm. along with some Sherpa support up high when we got there. But again, not really, not typical guides Mm -hmm. that that may be. So we get, we we do well uh, getting to Camp 3 again at 24,000 feet. And so when I left Camp 3, I left the tent a little bit late. And here's the deal. So you leave Camp 3 at 24,000 feet. You're supposed to be on the route by, say, 7 in the morning, no later. Okay. Get to high camp at about 26,200 feet at about 1 p.m. or so. Okay. And then you want to rest, hydrate, eat if you can. And it's hard to eat at altitude. You yeah. just don't feel like it. Uh, but but you need every bit of energy yeah, you can muster. Sure. But the, the thing is then you want to turn around pretty quickly. And at 930 that night get ready to go to the summit and be out of the tents at about 10, 30, 11 o'clock. Okay. Head for the summit, try and tag the summit at about, you know, 6, 7 in the morning, and then come back down 
while there's still plenty of light. And that really limits your time up high. And right. if you're really strong, you would go below high camp that same day. Okay. So but at, my, at high camp, is that the what they refer to as the death zone, so to speak? It's just the start. The death okay. zone starts right around 26,000 feet, okay. somewhere around there, okay. where your body's just not getting any better. Okay. You just It can't sustain life for long periods of time. Right. Okay. And that's why the supplemental oxygen helps a lot. Yeah. But it only really brings you down three or 4,000 feet. Okay. So... Where I really screwed up on, on that trip was leaving Camp 3. I, I got out a little bit late. So I'm breathing oxygen. Right. But my goggles got fogged up. Okay. So now I'm nervous. Like, oh, how do I get up here? Yeah. And, you know, not panic, but, but like, this isn't going the way I thought. Yeah. But they resolved themselves, and, and I started going, and I got some advice to, you know, hey, be conservative with your oxygen. Right. And I was too conservative, so I moved really slowly. And this is going to sound weird to folks, but thing about big mountains is they're often they're either too cold or too hot. So it was a beautiful day, but there was no wind, and I had my baffled down suit on, okay. and I started sweating. Okay. So now I'm going slow, not breathing enough, enough oxygen, and you have to go through some couple of dicey places. One called the uh, the Yellow Band, which is this cool like rock face. So uh-huh. in crampons, it's just kind of cumbersome and yeah. awkward. Mm-hmm. And again, you're on fixed ropes, but. And you're way up there. Yeah, so it, yeah. it's like, boy, we're not in Kansas anymore <laughs> sort of moments, right? <laughs> so we go there, and then there's another thing, the Geneva Spur, which is another little rocky uh, deal to get over. And then I finally pulled into high camp, but not until about 4.15 p.m. Okay. Supposed to be there at 1, and I'm just, I just was kind of, oh, I'm exhausted. Yeah. So I knew, and this was another mistake, I knew right away that I'm, I, I can't go for the summit tonight. Okay. I'm like, can I go tomorrow? I'm like, well, logistically, that's probably going to be a big issue. You know, if the weather's good, we're going tonight. And I'm, I and I, sort of I cashed in my chips too early. Yeah. And I said, now I'm not going to do it. So I did sleep a little bit. They're all getting ready to go. And I'm like, I feel a little bit better, but, you know, I, I want to be careful. Yeah. And I told myself, well, if I got to high camp, and I didn't kill myself or anyone else. That would probably be pretty successful. Okay. So they went that night, and then I knew the next day it wasn't going to go for me. So I saw the video on YouTube that I think you oh, recorded yeah, that yeah. day. So, yeah, that's uh, – I shot a lot of video there, and I was documenting sort of my feelings on yeah. there. And, you know, I'm a really big, tough guy, right? <laughs> and. Once I knew that I had lost the summit, yeah. I, I basically was crying like Nancy Kerrigan yeah. up there. You know, <laughs> I just felt awful, and, and and I really lied to myself. And this was a mistake. Was that gee, if I got to high camp, I kind of I, I think in your the article you shared with me yeah. about putting a there could be more rungs on the ladder. Yeah. I think I, I limited myself and said, well, that would be good enough. Good but enough. it wasn't good enough. I was just so bummed you put your heart soul money training ego everything into this kind of deal and when they pull the when the plug gets pulled yeah. which i did essentially on myself and then i tried to find another way up right and and the next day wasn't going the weather wasn't as good yeah. and i knew that we were i'd lost the summit and of course i was never going back yeah yeah i was cured forever mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, but but you know it was kind of demoralizing and we talked about this earlier, but at camp two, when I was getting ready to uh, get back down to base camp in yeah. thicker air, just as I was leaving, I tripped. I caught a front point on my crampon, and, and my knee hit a rock, and it hurt like a son of a gun. Yeah. 
And so that was insult to injury. Right. I limped my way off the mountain, uh, back to base camp, spent a day or yeah, two. Physically and mentally kind of. I was yeah. just, yeah, yeah, I was just beat up. And and everyone gets beat up to some extent. Sure. But I felt, you know, ego-wise, I was just really hurting and crushed from not making it yeah. and not even getting out of the tent. That's yeah. what really bothers me. And in, in hindsight, when I talked this over with Eric Simonson, yeah. he goes, you know, You'd be surprised what the body can do. And the mind quits before the body. Right. And you probably had it in you to make it. You yeah. just, you limited yourself. And so when you, again, back to the mind games, yeah. I, I absolutely let my mind stop me where I think my body could have made it. But yeah. be that as it may, I knew I was cured. I was never going back to big mountains. And then insult to injury. There's um, a funny chapter in my book. So flying back to uh, the U.S., uh, landed in Los Angeles and I have to clear customs and I had an extension visa. It was 60 days and mm-hmm. another 15 days in Nepal. And so the customs officer was kind of this big heavy dude. He's looking at it and he goes, Nepal, 65, 70, what were you doing there? Yeah. Well, you know, and if I had summited, I would have said, well, yeah. I was climbing Mount Everest because <laughs> I'm a man. And, uh, I'm like, well, you know, I was climbing a mountain. Oh, really? What mountain? And I just let it slip out. Well, yeah. Know, Everest. And of course, first thing people say sure. is they don't say, "Hey, did you have a great experience? Yeah, Were you yeah, a good yeah. teammate?" Yeah. They're like, "Did you get to the summit?" Yeah. And I'm like, and I try to make myself sound pretty good. Well, no, I got to you know, high camp at 26,200 feet, the death zone. Yeah. You know, yeah, I yeah. was right up there. And he goes, "Well, how much longer would it have taken to get to the summit?" Well, I go, "Well, if everything went pretty well, like 12, 14 hours." He looks at me. This big heavy guy yeah. who probably takes the escalator because his <laughs> stairs are too challenging. He goes, "Hey, you should have gone." I'm like, "Oh, yeah." Like, so, but I did pay him. Uh, I got back at him because one of my chapters in my book is t- entitled "Cheese Dick at LAX." So, <laughs> so I kind of. It's, it's easy to be the armchair quarterback, you right. know? Yeah, but it, but you know what? I, I I felt like he was right. I wish I could have given it a go. So I get home, and of course, I'm just I'm physically, mentally just. Just beat up. And yeah. I think I actually was mildly depressed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, my wife greets me and she, you know, she cried that I didn't make it. Yeah. And, and uh, again, you, we forget. M- mountaineers are quite selfish. Mm-hmm. You, we focus on our own goals and you forget about the loved ones you leave behind. Sure. Yeah. And it's easier when you're on the mountain. You know where you are. You know if you're safe. But if you're uh, someone at home and you yeah. care about that person, it's like, <gasps> are they in trouble? Are they in danger? I heard about this guy falling uh, yeah, and exactly. dying on the Lotse face. And, you know, so you try to downplay that stuff. So uh, my wife was immediately uh, supportive, said, if you want to go back, I, I, I know you need to. I, I fully support you. I wow. go, oh, you're wonderful. Yeah. But don't worry, I'm cured. Yeah. It's not going <laughs> to happen. And my two business partners at the time, Ray Martino and my brother, Chris Flynn, exact same thing. Yeah. You know, and I'm gone from work. What a great support system. Over, I mean. over two yeah. months. Yep. Super, super pleased about that. And they're like, hey, we totally support if you want to go back. I'm like, oh, you got, give me a hug. I love yeah. you guys. Yeah. But um, no, I'm cured. Yeah. You know, but the cure doesn't take. You forget the pain, right. and then you start to re-rack and, and roll the the tapes in your head. And go, yeah. man, if I had gotten out of the tent, if I had done this better, coulda, woulda, shoulda. Well, and, and so many people, I mean, they live their lives in that spot. You know, in everything, not not just scaling the tallest mountain in the world. So, how did you pull yourself kind of out of that kind of depressed or that abyss, and 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 go from Oh, I, you know, I failed in essence. Sure. To, to okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna put on my big boy pants and I'm gonna, um, 
you know, get my head in the right place and I'm going to go back and attack this goal again. Well, coming home and healing up a bit yeah. was helpful. And I don't, there wasn't an, uh, an aha moment okay. where I go, I'm going back. Yeah. I just kept going, oh, if I'd done this, I could have. And then I'm like, son of a gun. I had it. Yeah. I know I can do this. Okay. And then it's not mad, but it's, but a, re, a resolve. Yeah. You know, and, and I was a much stronger place. And so I said, yeah, I want to go. And I didn't want to go back the next year because that was a little too quick. So, yeah. so 2002 was when I didn't make it. So I went back in the spring of 2004. Okay. And a much different world. Yeah. As far as from the mindset, because now, yeah, I knew about those Maoist things that, that never, you know, again, don't worry twice. It never really materialized. Right. It was never really an issue. I knew that I could get at least a high camp. I, right. I knew I had that in me. I knew I could go through the ice fall, which is, you know, the first time through was pretty yeah. slow and all that stuff. But I got better. Mm-hmm. And my skills got, you know, got better and better in confidence. And yeah. and so the next time going through the, uh, on the trek, I'm just drinking it all in. I'm yeah. enjoying it more. I'm taking more side trips. Just, I know that keeping busy uh, is important. So uh, at a couple points on the trek and you stop for like three nights, two or three nights at, at like 11, five and at about 14, just to get some more acclimatization. Yep. But one of the times we stopped at 14 on April Fool's Day, my buddy, this guy, Brian Cheedy and I and a, a Sherpa, were like, hey, we're gonna take a little hike up, uh, what was it called, um, uh, Chukung Ri. Okay. Ri stands for peak, R-I. Okay. So Chukung is this mountain and it's about Eighteen eight, and we're going from fourteen. We're like, we're just going to go into Chukung, which is this little teeny village. Okay, but we got there in like an hour and ten minutes, and and we had planned to go a little way up the up that uh-huh. mountain. We're like, ah, we're feeling good. Like we just kept going and going, and and we summited that mountain, and it was a trekking peak, so okay. it was no big deal. But it was way up there; it was uh-huh. about eighteen thousand five hundred feet. So sure. we did about a well over four thousand feet of vertical. Okay. And, and we were fast and strong. And mm. This is just better. I'm, yeah. in, I'm in a better place. I'm happier. And get to base camp. And, and this time it's like, oh, hello, old friend. Yeah. I'm back. And, you know, we'll see what happens. And so i much, much better uh, mentally okay. uh, equipped to do it. And I uh, climb mostly with uh, this guy, Brian Sheedy, who's uh-huh. actually originally from Syracuse but now lives in uh, Walla Walla, Washington. Okay. Huh. He's the outdoor director for Whitman College. Great guy. Another guy, Dan Barter from New England, and this guy, Jason Tangway, who was the assistant expedition leader, Okay, uh, but assistant guide. But he wasn't really a guide for us. Okay. And he had lost the summit of Everest a few years previous on the north side. And we were going up the south side, the, okay. the Hillary Tenzing Norgay yep. route. And because they stopped to help someone who was coming down from the summit, okay. three guys who were really, really sick. One didn't make it, oh, wow. but they worked really hard and s- saved those two other guys. Okay. And he was a 15-minute stroll from making the summit. Wow. But he gave it up to talk help people. And, and, yeah. Right, and you talk about people walking over bodies and not helping. So this is the kind of character this guy has yeah. and strength. And so... We decided that the four of us would, would mostly climb together. Okay. So, again, we didn't have a Sherpa assigned to us or a guide necessarily, but having Jason in our group was really great. And they, you couldn't ask for better partners. So we did rotations together, not not every single one. Mm-hmm. I did every one with Brian, my okay. buddy there. But our final uh, push for the summit came. You know, we got a weather window, and we went up. There were five of us. There was another guy from Canada who okay. was not our favorite necessarily, mm-hmm. but he, he was with us. And the plan was once you get to high camp that uh, 
four out of five of us, we're going to have a climbing Sherpa with us. Okay. So we would carry these pretty big, uh, like about a 17-pound bottle of oxygen on okay. summit day. But the Sherpas would take two. Wow. Okay. And so they would use one for themselves all day, and we would have two for us. Now, the Sherpas are just incredibly strong folks. Yeah. I have... They're the unsung Re- heroes, really. Absolutely. Yeah. I have a ridiculous amount of respect for them. And, and they are physiologically predisposed to be better than us because okay. they've been living at altitude for many, many generations. Sure. And so they're kind of slight in stature, mm-hmm. but they're ridiculously strong huh. and, uh, and efficient users of oxygen. Okay. So physiologically, their lungs and their heart are larger than ours. Okay. So they do have somewhat of an, an advantage. Sure. But they're still human. Yeah. And, and yeah. so... We get up to uh, the summit or to the uh, high camp, uh-huh. and it's like, okay, this time I got out of camp three really early. I wasn't going to screw that up again. Yep. I was breathing a, a, a good dose of O's, the, a, a better flow rate. Okay. Uh, I had my goggles figured out. I was the first guy out of the tent. Okay. I wasn't the first guy to high camp, but I was close. Right. So I got there at about 1 p.m., feeling good. You know, It's like, yep. Got this. I, we got this. Yeah. And the plan was to, at about 9 o'clock or so, 9.30 that night, get ready, get out of the tent, and uh, go for the summit by 10.30, we'd hoped to. Okay. Well, at about 9 o'clock, it's pretty windy. It's like, do we go? Don't we go? I don't know. We, we're committing ourselves. We were the first of the first folks to actually would be the first folks to summit that year. Okay. Oh, and, wow. in fact, the fixed ropes weren't fixed all the way to the summit. So that was going to happen. There was there were three expeditions that were up there and about 25 people were going to go for the summit, including Sherpas. Right. And the Sherpas, some of the Sherpas were going to go ahead and, and fix the rest of the route, okay. get those safety lines in up, up way high. Right. And some groups decided not to go that night. So we had less support and we didn't get out of the tent until about 10 after 11 p.m. We oh, wow. finally okay. decided we're going to go for it. The wind kind of died down. It was an absolutely spectacular, starry night. You could see some shooting stars. You could see some thunderstorm way off in Tibet somewhere. Okay. But it was really cool, and, and we knew that at least now the weather was great. And how were you feeling at this point? I mean, were you physically, did you, you, you know, mentally you were in a better space. How were you physically at that I, point? I felt pretty good because I was able to drink and eat some. Okay. Uh, and I slept probably about three hours, which okay. was great. At that altitude, yeah, a little so, bit of rest, and and yeah. and um, you know, felt like we had a really good attempt at okay. this. So five of us less left uh, high camp, five Western climbers, and four Sherpas. My okay. Sherpa was Ming Mashiring, mm-hmm. who's really quiet. Uh, and most Sherpas are are pretty funny and, yeah. and and great folks, but he was just kind of shy and quiet. But and I never had no idea of how strong he really was until right. that day unfolded. So about an hour out of camp. Um, one of the Sherpas had some lower GI issues. You okay. know, they're, they're superhuman, but they are human. Yeah. And so he turned around. Okay. So now, unbeknownst to me at this point, Mingma took a third 17-pound bottle of oxygen wow. to carry. So okay. he took the extra bottle for the other guy, which is just amazing. So we climbed up to basically the halfway point up the triangular face, it's called, to the balcony at uh-huh. about... 27,600 feet, something like that. Okay. We get there, and and it's a little bit late because he stopped there. Then we get up to that point, and one of the Sherpas, Panuru, uh, his oxygen leaked. So he went down. So now there's five Westerners and just two Sherpas. Right. 
And and the balcony is a point, the kind of the halfway point. That's where you leave your half uh, spent bottle of oxygen there. You take the full one for the summit run to go up, okay. get the summit, come back down, and then when you get back to the balcony, you've got reserves right. left over. Sure. Right. So uh, that's the deal. So we get up there. So it took time with Panuru. It's like okay, the clock is ticking away. And then we go part way up, and the fixed lines aren't aren't that good, and, and they didn't bring as much rope. So I'm like, I'm not going. Uh, I, I want that protection. I yeah, mean, I, I yeah. promised I'd come home alive. Yeah. And Jason goes, yeah, just chill. He goes, it's a perfect day. He goes, we can probably cut some of the old fixed lines from previous years. We'll make it work. The route won't be quite as, you know, we may miss some spots that right. aren't super dangerous, but... We've got all the time in the world. The weather's perfect. Okay. So, but that cost about an hour and a half. So the clock's ticking. Right. Yeah. So we're going up to the the south summit of Everest. When then there's a little dip along the. Then you go the southeast for, uh, ridge. Okay. And it's kind of a knife's edge ridge. And you get to the Hillary Step. Huh. And then after the Hillary Step, it's supposed to be about ten minutes more to the true summit. And pretty simple. So we're going up towards the south summit. And I look at my watch, which is an altimeter type watch. I'm going, oh, crap, it's 10.35 in the morning already. Okay. I'm doing the math. Once we get to the South Summit, it could take three hours round trip, even though it's vertically, it's only another 500 feet. But yeah. it's, it's it's tricky. Uh, so I'm like, oh, jeez, it's not going to go. Yeah. And I say to uh, Jason, I go, dude, we're, we're late. This isn't going well. Yeah. He goes, no, we're okay. Wow, he's, he's normally pretty cautious. I go to Mingma. I go, Mingma, we... We're running out of time. He goes, no, it's okay. We're fine. I'm like, so I climb for another 10, 15 minutes. I look at my watch again. It's still 1035. Only it's not the time and, and oxygen right. at that point. You're, you're still <clears throat> breathing and your mental acuity is not as sharp okay. as you'd like it to be. Yeah. I mean, it's okay. But I realized that that's the bare, that's the al- Barometric pressure. pressure. Oh. So it's about one third of okay. what it is because normally the barometer would read around, you know, 3000, 29.95, something like that. But it's reading 10.35 okay. because it's about one third of the available yeah. oxygen. So yeah. I click my watch again and I see what altitude we're at. I click it again and it's it's 8.07 oh, a.m. So you're I'm okay. Like, hey, <laughs> we just came. I'm like, <laughs> we just might make this work. And so I get to the South Summit and that's the first time you can actually see the true summit. Okay. And it is a pretty scary knife's edge ridge. I mean, it, it's not, it's technical, but it's not super hard. Okay. But you're at 28,700 feet. So how are you feeling at that point? You're, I mean, literally you're, you're <coughs> a, a short distance, a relatively short distance away. You've, you know, this is the, you know, in your mind where you've, you know, you, you've kind of thought about this now for, for years. Um, you know, so you get that at phase. What's, what, what, what are you feeling at that Yeah, point? normally I get that adrenaline rush. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I got this. Yeah. I'm like, ah. Oh. I'm really tired. Okay. But everyone's really tired on, on Everest. So, okay. So I think Megma and I are the last ones in our groups that, that kind of head down the south summit. And it's not maybe 60 vertical feet, not, okay. not super far. To, and then on the ridge, and on the ridge is pretty airy, mm-hmm. you know, maybe 10,000 feet to the right in Tibet and 8,000 down into <laughs> Nepal. Not exactly sure, but you're not going to stop. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. You're going to bounce on down. So that's like, wow, that's kind of intimidating. Yeah. And get to the Hillary step, which is the last, you know, the crux of that and the obstacle. 
and used uh, my senders up there, climbed it reasonably well. But I'm going, wow, I'm really slow. I'm, I'm just slow. Yeah. You know, I just feel like someone pulled the plug on me a bit. I'm like, okay. And then I did the, the cheesiest, stupid thing that I tell everyone not to do. As soon as I got to the top of the Hillary step, I looked up and it's like, well, from there, it's a, it's a cakewalk. But I'm going, that still looks pretty far. Yeah. I don't know if I can do this. And here's the stupid question you ask. You know, so I go to Mingma, how much farther are we have to go? <laughs> Dad, and, and are we like, almost there yet? <laughs> exactly. And that's just <laughs> awful. And he goes, well, it's 10 minutes. And I go, oh, okay. Yeah. You know? So that 10 minutes turned into 30 minutes and not quite to the summit. And some of our folks had already tagged the summit. But it's late now. It's it's pushing 2 p.m. That's okay. way too late. We want to be up there by 10 in the morning or, wow. or even yeah, earlier. Yeah. And Jason looks at me and he's like, and he can't tell me what to do necessarily because he's unguided he goes dude it's getting really late so it's like so Ming and I kind of made it up to the to the summit uh-huh. people go hey what's it like to stand on top of the world and I'm like I really wouldn't know because I sat down there I was so <laughs> tired and there was no you know ecstasy I just I had all these thoughts in my mind and yeah hold up this flag and take lots of hero summit photos yeah. and my summit photo is pretty awful my lips look blue I look pretty uh pretty bad I took a picture of, of Mingma and we spent maybe five minutes if that up there huh. and I'm like okay well going down will be better but unbeknownst to me which I would find out two and a half days later is I got pneumonia on summit day and, and you can sometimes get high-altitude pulmonary edema. Okay. But this was pneumonia. So I just got real slow. And, and I'm headed down. I thought, well, head down, you know, I'll do better. But I had to rest a lot. And then going down the Hillary step is, is a two-stage rappel. So mm-hmm. I rappelled the first part fine, rappelled the second part. I went to put my foot down. And I kind of missed, and I got turned uh, upside down. Oh, so all these extra fixed lines, I'm hanging around. I look like a fly in a spider's web yeah. kind of wow. deal. I try to get myself right in. And by the time I'm working on that, trusty Mingma was there, and he cut some of the fixed lines away that I that I was tangled in. Uh-huh. Helped me there, but that took a lot out of me. Sure. So we're going along the southeast ridge, and then I saw we had to climb back up to the south summit. It was like 60 vertical feet. No, uh-huh. no big deal. I go, well, and I have my walkie-talkie, and I go, I'm just going to bivouac up here, which is take a you know, sleep with no uh, sleeping bag and stuff because I'm really tired. Okay. And you could hear the, the concern at, at base camp. They can't do anything for me, and the other guys are already you know, a bit down. And if you can't get yourself down, yeah. no one can carry you at that altitude. Right. You have to get yourself down. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, that's not even physically. I mean, you wouldn't have survived had you actually done that, right? It would have been a long ice nap. Okay. Yeah, I would All still right. be up there. So right. uh, finally, they said, Kevin, do you, you know, what kind of medications you have? So I had something called nifedipine, uh-huh. uh, dexamethasamone. That's for uh, cerebral edema, something okay. for your head, and. Um, and uh, another uh, kind of medication. Uh-huh. But the, the one that really probably saved my life was the nifedipine, which was for your lungs. Okay. So, again, I didn't know I had that and uh, uh, pneumonia. So I took it, and I, and I came to my senses. Like I said, your mental acuity is not always the sharpest. Even though you're bringing, breathing O's, you're, you're still at altitude. And, sure. And you're... Because you, you said know, it only brings you down, what, about 3,000 three, three, feet? Three, 4,000 so feet. You're still, you know, at that, you're 26, 25,000 feet right. altitude. Yeah. So I finally realized, I'm like, ooh, ooh. 
Yeah. I can't stay here. This is crazy. And Mingma, God bless him, he was so calm. He was like, Kevin, please, we must go. <laughs> and like, okay, so I, I started up, and it was a slow climb to get to the South Summit. Started heading down the South Summit and, you know, had to rest. And, you know, it's pretty steep, so I'm just sitting back. So what you are know, you saying to yourself as you're as you're doing this? Because uh, in zombie-like state, okay. a little bit. I yeah. know that I have to get down. Yeah, but my body's not working how I want it to work. Exactly. So I mean, it's just pure right. will. Mm-hmm. And Mingma is like, Kevin, please, we must go. Yeah. And he'd let me rest. You know, my uh-huh. 15, 20, 30, 40 seconds, and and he just kept sort of slowly falling down. Not falling down the mountain exactly, but just coming down. Yeah sitting back, resting. And then my oxygen ran out. And I'm like, because we were up there so long. And I just kind of matter-of-factly said to Ming, oh, my oxygen ran out. He immediately <laughs> undoes mine, undoes his. He gives me what's left in his bottle, carries down the other bottle. Now he's breathing without supplemental oxygen. Amazing. And because the international mountain guides have such great logistics, yeah. they're like, okay, this is kind of worrisome so they sent up a couple of sherpas to the balcony okay to meet us with extra oxygen and, okay. and hot drinks which is really awesome and i hoped a sleeping bag because i wanted to sleep up there but that wasn't gonna happen yeah, yeah, right yeah. so we're coming down and now it gets dark at about six thirty. so it's dark yeah you know i have my headlamp and mingma doesn't have a headlamp or or his battery ran out i forget but yeah. and and again in that I had an extra headlamp in my packet that I totally forgot that okay. I could have given them. But anyways, we see a couple of headlamps coming up. I'm like, oh, sweet. I'm going to be able to sleep here at the balcony. Yeah. I'm like, nope. So they got Mingma, his own oxygen. Okay. I got extra oxygen at a higher rate, and, and they helped. We all came down. I got some hot drinks. And, okay. But I didn't get back to high camp until 10, 15 p.m. that night. Wow. So it's 24 so almost hours. Almost 24 hours. Point. Yeah. Almost 24 hours. So I thought, well, once I'm at a high camp breathing, I was, I'll feel better. Yeah. I'd, and you didn't know at this point you had pneumonia. I had no idea. Okay. So pretty fitful night. Next morning, the plan, this is pretty normal, was to descend down to Camp 2 mm-hmm. uh, from basically 26,200 to about 21,300. And you got to go down the Lotse phase. Yeah. And there's a few rappel areas. And, and I'm like, man, I thought I'd feel good the next day. Sure. Most people do. And I, I just didn't. And so very slowly made, made my way down. Now we're without the Sherpas at this point. There's okay. just the, the five of us. Westerners, slow, slow go to finally get to Camp Two. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, thick air. I'll be fine now. Sure. Only I wasn't, so I'm still breathing nose and <clears throat> doing the best I can. Next morning, we have to go down through the Western Coom and then through the ice fall, the mm-hmm. last barrier. And you know, normally that would have been, I don't know, four going that way, maybe four hours, four and a half. Coming up would you know obviously be more, yeah. but. I was slower coming down than going up because hmm. it's just I just didn't know what was wrong. So we finally, Brian and I were the last two guys. He and I went through it, and I had a pretty heavy pack at that point. Yeah. Uh, finally get through the ice fall, and I always imagined, you know, having summited, and it's called Crampon Point, which uh-huh. is at the base of the ice fall, and that's when when you take your your spikes off there, you know you've, uh, you're you out of it. major yeah. danger, right? Yeah. So you're not going to get, you're not going to die. And so I just imagined how that great a feeling. And I was like, you know, there's a picture of Brian and me as we got back to to base camp. And we're just, he had a little bronchitis as well. But I'm just a mess. And uh, our expedition leader down at base camp, the manager, if you will, said, we're just, there's a medical tent. We're going to just get you checked out. So 
I go in there and they immediately go, oh, you have pneumonia because they can hear my lungs right. rattling. You have a fever of 101 degrees. Uh, I also was wicked dehydrated. Uh-huh. So they gave me IV fluids. So I probably had five bags of IV wow. fluids. And they sat with me overnight. And I, I felt a lot better the okay. next morning. But, you know, I was still pretty well beat up. But they did a, a, an amazing job of, of looking after me. And they're like, hey, if we can get a chopper in here. Uh, we might want to just as a precaution get you into Kathmandu and into a hospital. I'm like, okay. So that was my first helicopter ride, and it was pretty dicey because the weather wasn't perfect. Well, and you've got no air, so helicopter ride to that altitude can't be too safe, you know? Right. So, yeah, and there's a a crashed helicopter at the near base camp from the year before where three people died. So, yeah, yeah, it's like, (laughs) so take the helicopter ride in, and I think I'm going to probably spend a couple days in the hospital, but it was so awesome. I go to this clinic, and the doctor goes, yeah, you have pneumonia here in your left lung, uh, but they've given you good medication and your fever's gone. Uh, you're doing great. Finish your Z pack of some antibiotics or whatever. And here's some cough lozenges. You're free to go. I'm like, okay. sweet. Oh, I'm wow. sprung. Yeah. So I went from the summit of Everest on a Saturday to being in Kathmandu on a Wednesday morning wow. where it's warm and wonderful. And I'm like, oh, all right, I'm going to have lunch. I'm feeling better. So at this point, I mean, did the did the the magnitude of what you just accomplished, no. it still hadn't no, hit it, you? No, it hadn't hit me at all. I'm still uh, in, in kind of a fog. And I have lunch, and I'm like, I can have a beer, sure. So I have a beer, and I'm, like, and, and I'm pretty happy. And I took, you know, multiple showers, yeah. and that felt great. And because the chopper can't carry much weight at that uh, altitude, uh, my duffels, mm-hmm. all my equipment, I only have one small little pack. Uh, they left it there and they said, we'll, we'll, we'll get it to you. Okay. So someone advised me, well, wait for your duffels. So they weren't going to be back into Kathmandu till about probably four or five days later. Okay. And I'm like, uh, I, and Eric Simonson was actually who went – for the first part of the trip, it was back in Seattle. He called me just make sure, and he was really cool, and make sure. I thought he was going to yell at me for yeah. being a, a nuisance, but yeah. he couldn't have been more awesome. And he's like, oh, man, don't rotten cat, man. Do you get back home and see Maggie? We'll take care of your bag. So then I feverishly arranged for getting a flight because right. I had to change my flights, and I had no problem going from Kathmandu to Bangkok. But to get to Bangkok through, I guess I was going to go through Hong Kong, Bangkok to Hong Kong, that was okay. But Hong Kong to Vancouver mm-hmm. and then Vancouver to New York was problematic. And they're tippy tapping away on their, their, you know, the ticket agent. And they're like, yeah, we can't get you home until like May 31st. And like, look at me. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. So they said, well, we can, we can upgrade you to business class, but it's going to be, it wasn't that much, maybe $1,300 or $1,400. Okay. So finally, <clears throat> and I'm coughing. You know, I mean, I definitely am coughing a lot. Sure. I get to the flight. I spent one night in, in Bangkok and then get to Hong Kong on, on economy class. And then I get to on the plane. And they go, oh, right this way, Mr. Flynn. And I sit down in business class on, a, on an Asian experience. carrier. Yeah. I can't kick the seat in front of me. Yeah. And I'm you know beat up. And, and they're like, would you like some French champagne, Mr. Flynn? Well, yeah. <laughs> so, so you asked, when did the magnitude sort of hit me? Well, first of all, they, the, the food was pretty good in first class. Yeah. And vintage wine, it's not like yeah. I got wasted or anything, but just... Just savoring it. Yeah. It was great. And they had Haagen-Dazs ice cream. And, you know, you aren't eating that yeah. well. So I, I lost probably 20, 25 pounds. Wow. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. And I watched a movie called Touching the Void, uh-huh. which is a climbing movie. Yeah. 
But after that, I was like, well, I could sleep. But I go, I don't want to sleep. I just listen to music with my head set. So when you say about the magnitude yeah. of it all kicking in, that's kind of when it did. And it felt absolutely surreal. Yeah. Like, did this, did it really happen or was it a dream? And I'm like, it really happened. <laughs> and I'm in first class coughing. You would hate being near me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm going, and I just kept listening to music. And if you sat next to me, you'd have thought I was a little touched in the head right. because I'm just grinning and I'm replaying the hard drive in my mind about how all this went. And it was, you know, it would have been cool if I just got up there and tagged the summit and got down and was really healthy. And in fact, <clears throat> probably went overnight. <clears throat> One of the doctors was, I, I was lamenting to her, oh my God, you know, I wish I was a better teammate. I put, some of the Sherpas had to come up. I, I was a real inconvenience for yeah. everyone. Ah, oh, geez, I didn't do it in the kind of style I want. She goes, hey, look, I don't know why you guys do what you do. He yeah. goes, but you just climbed Mount Everest and got down with pneumonia yeah. on your own. And yeah. you go, you should feel pretty good about that. So she kind of gave me permission kinda to feel. reset your brain a little yeah, bit. Yeah, she gave me permission to feel good. And I was like, yeah, well. You know, a mere mortal couldn't have survived that, but of course I didn't. No, no. But no, I was I was just, you know, so thankful. So on that flight home, I'm just for, you know, I don't know, it's 10, 12-hour flight to Vancouver or whatever yeah. it is, crazy long. And I'm just so happy. I didn't want to sleep. I just yeah. wanted to keep drinking it all in and, and replaying it and going, wow, this really happened. So I was able to get from the summit of Everest on a Saturday, Saturday yeah. and was all the way back and home in Rochester on Friday. So that's ridiculously yeah. fast to go from the summit to get back home. <laughs> really? You know, it would have taken another probably five, six days. So it was a whirlwind. So anyways, wow. that was that Everest adventure. Unbelievable. What a, what an amazing story. And, it, you know, in so many so many metaphors for life, really, in, in you know, and what, what you accomplished. You know, it's the, you know, the obstacles that we have to overcome. I mean, we all we all have our mountains or mm -hmm. what seems like mountains, you know, not necessarily the physical ones, but the, the, you know, the, whether it's somebody who's, you know, they're trying to, you know, get in a position in their career or they're struggling with some aspect of their personal lives. And it, 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 so I'm, I'm curious, Kevin, the, in climbing all of these mountains and doing this, you know, doing this journey, what what kind of life lessons did you did you learn along the way that that if that you've been able to you know kind of port to everyday life yeah you know i <clears throat> i like to fly yeah. uh, and an instrument rated flyer and being an entrepreneur i think there's so many similarities yeah. between running a business you know, and uh instrument flying you know in the clouds and and high altitude mountaineering so there's there's the mental aspect of yeah. it, you know, staying focused. Uh, no one that I've ever known who's a business owner has would say, oh, yeah, I was an overnight success yeah. immediately. Everything worked great. We never had any troubles. So, yeah. so one of the lessons is there are going to be obstacles along the way, you know, mm -hmm. and you're just going to have to break through them. You're going to have to deal with it. You know, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. All that cliche kind yeah. of stuff. But it, it was... You know, not making Everest was the first time was kind of a godsend because it made me stronger and better and smarter. And, and in our own business, you know, we almost went bankrupt in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, we were right up against it. So, I mean, 
that idea of persistence. Yeah. There's an old football coach who's like paralyzed resistance with persistence. Huh. So, you know, one of those life lessons is, you know what? If you're a junkyard dog and you keep after it, you know, eventually good things will happen. You know, yeah. the joke of a lot of those. Yeah, I was an overnight success. It took 10 years. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, so that worked out. And then the, the mental aspects of it, trying to stay positive when things aren't always going your way and accepting that a lot of things aren't in your control. The right. whole deal about trying not to over worry about things because yeah. that's really negative energy to, that doesn't help you know, move the ball forward kind of, kind of deal. Yep. Um, other lessons you learn is that, Hey, no one is infallible. Yeah. It's, you know, you could do everything right and something bad could still happen to you, whether it's in business, uh, flying, you know, you can mitigate the dangers as much as you want. And that's the other good thing that I learned was, uh, is risk mitigation. Mm -hmm. You know, at some point, what's that? There's a quote, someone says, you know, a ship is safe in the harbor, but that's not what ships were made for. Right. So right. getting yourself out there and, and taking some risk, moving outside of your comfort zone. Uh, you know, sometimes in business you make decisions and you don't know. You know, you hope you can see around the corner, but you don't know if what you decided to do and invest in is going to really pay off sure. or not or be a colossal mistake. Yeah. Um, and, and accepting and overcoming mistakes because you're going to make mistakes. So and. In flying, I learned a lot of that kind of stuff, That especially the risk mitigation. A lot of great decision-making happens before you ever take off. Yeah. And a lot of accidents happen before they took off because they made bad decisions before they went. And there's usually an accident chain. So it's not one thing that goes bad. Mm -hmm. You know, it's two things go bad. You can kind of deal with it. Three things go bad. It's a real problem. Like on a mountain, you might go, well, I feel terrible, but the weather's perfect. Yeah. And you go and get away with it. I feel terrible. The weather's coming in. It seems to be getting worse. And I didn't have any rest or whatever. Yeah. It is. That's kind of a recipe for disaster. So so learning some of those things uh, as far as risk management. You, yeah. you, you want to you do things that are a bit risky, but you don't want to <laughs> suffer yeah. the ultimate uh, price. Exactly. That makes sense. So, Kevin, here's the, you know, for for so many people... Yeah, myself included. You know, uh, you know, people are, they, you know, they have dreams and aspirations. They've got, uh, you know, some picture of the life they want to build. I think most people, you know, have that. But then they, they step back and they look at somebody like yourself and all that you've accomplished in life, you know, and, and you seem, it's, it's almost superhuman. Like how can, you know, how can you do those things? But, you know, I, I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't do those kinds of things, you know. And and so we kind of rationalize why, you know, why others can do it and, 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 and we can't. Uh, and, you know, what I what I love in your story is that you've, you know, you, you haven't painted yourself as some superhuman or you're a regular guy who has, you know, accomplished incredible things. Um I'm curious, uh, knowing, knowing all that you've, you've learned through the course of this journey, and, and you said a lot of it was kind of accidental. I didn't set out when I was 17 years old and say, I'm going to climb the, you know, the seven highest summits on the seven continents. But if you could go back and give your 17-year-old self advice with everything that you've learned you know, through the course of the journey, what, what, would you, what, would you, what advice would you give yourself? 
Yeah, well, at 17, I probably wouldn't listen to me, <laughs> so there's that problem. Uh, you know, I, like I said, a lot of it was accidental, and, yeah. and, and a lot sort of became selfish, too. I, I, I did things I really liked. I yeah. never really set out like to do this seven so yeah. there are people who go I, I that's a bucket list thing and yeah. it's like I just really liked mountains and they just got bigger and and once you did one thing it's like well I could do this so I guess the advice I, I would give and, and in our business it's kind of cool uh, I'm probably a few years away from retiring and uh, it's now a third generation my my brother's uh, daughter is, is working with us and yeah. son too but the daughter is is been there longer and we're trying to nurture and mentor her to to go to hopefully you know be a succession plan for for my brother and me uh eventually and she's doing great and it's awesome so it is helpful to and my father was a good mentor for me but it but it's helpful to say okay you're gonna have bad days you know what they're gonna be things that seem insurmountable but it'll be okay you're stronger and better than you have any idea that you are. And and if you're, you know, some of my great mentors, some who didn't even know they were a mentor, yeah. like my client, uh, Ed Stack at Dick's yeah. Sporting Goods, in a way is a mentor. And I don't know, did he set out to be it? Sure. But, but one of his great qualities and one that I, I, I strive for uh, with some folks and, and certainly with Chris's daughter, Katie, at our shop, is to try and make her better than she thinks she can be. Yeah. I mean, she is really good. So I would tell my 17-year-old self is, is don't put a governor on you. Mm-hmm. I mean, like your uh, metaphor with the rungs on the ladder, yeah. I, I guess, is that you can accomplish so much more than you have any idea that's in there. I mean, it may not happen tomorrow, but, you know, so, yeah, I'm not superhuman. Uh, I did things I really liked. I... I got the requisite skills and training and, and that I needed to do to try and get to the next level. But I, you know, I did it because I really liked it. And that, yeah. the other thing I would I would tell my 17-year-old self is to pursue your passion. Yeah. I'm going to screw up this quote, but this guy Howard Thurman has this great passion. And he goes, don't do what other people, I'm, I'm going to screw it up. But yeah. it's basically, it's basically find your passion in life. Don't ask what others think of you. Find that what you want to do that you really love and go do it, find your passion, and and things will work out if yeah. you are passionate about it. So I was lucky, you know, that, that things like that just sort of fell in place. Yeah. So. Well, that's pretty darn good advice, <laughs> you know. And, and really for all of us, you know, to, to recognize that there's there's so much more in us. There's a, um, when you were talking earlier, and I remember, <clears throat> uh, I think it's the Navy SEALs. They talk about, I think it's the 40% or something like that. They've got this rule that, that you know when when you when you think you're on the edge and you there's nothing more you got forty more forty percent more in the tank kind of thing you know yeah um, and uh, so to, to to remind ourselves of that and and to your point don't be afraid to dream because yeah. you never know right where those dreams will lead you yeah so yeah like I said I was I was really lucky that the things I like just sort of fell into became great passions and. Uh, it, it's sort of an accident, lucky accident, you know, yeah. and as far as, as work, you know, I've never had, uh, I mean, my, my clients are my bosses, if yep. you will, but I never had a boss. Yeah. Um, I got to climb amazing mountains and, and beyond just the seven summits. I, I was just in the Adirondacks last weekend and climbed a mountain there and yeah. it was, it's still fun and great. Uh, and, and flying, I get a, a, a lot of satisfaction. I fly mostly for business. That yeah. was the other weird 
you know, to sort of circle back to a, that, that accident of flying. I never flew at all until I was 25 years old, commercial, private, otherwise, yeah. anything. And, uh, and it was cool. I loved it because I was going on a vacation in Florida, yeah. and it was really awesome, and I liked it. But then when our big, biggest client at the time was Dick's Sporting Goods, mm-hmm. when they moved from Binghamton in 1994 to Pittsburgh, they moved their headquarters, we had to go there at least three times a month, and three of us had to go there, and it was on our own nickel. Mm-hmm. So we would, uh, U.S. Air had a, was a hub at that point in Pittsburgh, so it was great, direct flights. But they had you. They were the only game in town. Right. And I think without a Saturday night stay and all that nonsense, and this is back in 94, it was like $560 per round trip per person times three and then times three per month. So it's almost like six grand a month. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. And Kaysen would drive, but that was just too much yeah. to do. So finally, we had to take someone from Cleveland and charter them to Rochester for a shoot. Okay. Uh, and they had to be somewhere in Cleveland that morning. We really wanted that person, and my younger brother looked at all the chartering options for plane from Cleveland to Rochester, uh-huh. from a Learjet all the way down to a single-engine plane. He okay, single-engine planes are cheap Yeah. At, at, at that point. He goes, we should learn to fly. We could fly to Pittsburgh. He goes, it was his idea. Yeah. And I was, at this point, I had become a white-knuckle flyer in the in the airlines. I don't know why, but you know, yeah. turbulence bothered mm-hmm. me. What's that? That's the landing gear coming down, you idiot. Relax. <laughs> so I'm like, well, he goes, we'll learn to fly. Here's the deal. We could rent a flight instructor for the day, and they're trying to build hours. So that was only 150 bucks, And you could rent the plane, and a single-engine plane, uh, with fuel, 300 bucks. So for four hundred and fifty dollars, yeah. we Cost would a get a lesson. Yeah. yeah, less, and we would we would be able to fly down to Pittsburgh. So I would fly left seat, and the instructor be in the right, uh-huh. the other two folks back there, and then my brother Chris would fly and get a lesson on the way back. Okay. Well, he got real close to his pilot's license, but he had three young kids at home, mm-hmm. and smartly he goes, "If I can't stay current, proficient, and all those kinds of stuff, I don't think I'm going to be safe enough." So. Right. I really liked it, and so I, I, that's how I learned to fly, by accident. And it became a great business tool, and I bought a plane at the end of 2003. I'm on my second airplane. It's a single-engine yeah. uh, Cirrus SR-22 Turbo, great yep. airplane. You know, I've gone to Florida a bunch, but, but visiting clients and, and, and trying to gain new clients throughout the Northeast, yeah. so uh, absolutely wonderful business tool. Like I went to Dick's last uh, Wednesday, we could go Wednesday. Uh, it, we had a 1.30 meeting. Uh, I went to my office first in Pittsburgh. Uh, left there at about uh, 10 o'clock. Got to the airport. Have our meeting. Back home for dinner. No problem. Yeah. And we control the schedule. Keep your shoes on. All kinds of good stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. There you so, go. Yeah. Another happy accident. Another happy. Well, you know, the the uh, sometimes the best things in life we don't oftentimes realize in the moment mm-hmm. are the best things in life, you know? Yeah, and the, true. The, the, the lessons that we carry away. Well, Kevin, thank you so much. Sure, my pleasure. For coming in and sharing some time with us today. Uh, what a what a phenomenal story and what, what phenomenal lessons you've learned along the way, you know? A, yeah. uh, a life well lived. Yeah, well, I feel very, very fortunate. So thanks. Yeah. thanks thank David. you, Kevin. Hey guys, one more thing before you take off. This is Motivational Intelligence Insider. It's just a very short, exclusive email uh, every Monday that 
comes from Dave, John, and the guests on this show. Uh, This is the only place they share their very, very best stuff, and it's delivered right to your inbox every single Monday. Uh, This could include exclusive tips for upping your game, uh, articles they're reading, videos they're watching, stories from the road, and on and on. It's the best way to kick off your week, and this content is uh, comes directly from Dave, John, and the guests, and is only available to subscribers of Motivational Intelligence Insider. So if you want these guys and gals to email you their best stuff, go to 2logical.com forward slash insider. That's the number 2logical.com forward slash insider, and drop in your email. And if you do, I hope you enjoy The Motivational Intelligence Podcast is produced by the team at 2Logical. 2Logical is an international corporate training firm and the world's leading expert in motivational intelligence, which is the ability to understand, manage, and change the motives people have. 2Logical offers over 30 different keynotes, workshops, and full training courses to small, medium, and large Fortune 500 companies in 53 countries, a lot of which you're probably familiar with. Advisor, Bank of America, GE, Constellation Brands, P&G, and more. All solutions are completely customized and the feedback from these sessions will blow your mind. If you have any training or speaking needs or just want to say hey, head over to 2logical.com.